morning, Crossroads. How are you? Glad I beat you to that last service. There was a lady sitting right in the front row, and before I could say good morning, she's like, good morning. And I was like, dang it, man, one job, man. Got one job, and I missed the mark first service, so I'm glad there was no early speakers out here. My name is Tyler. I have the great privilege of being the Lompoc campus pastor here at Crossroads Church. Um, What that means is I get to care for the people of Lompoc. Uh, We are going to be going through the Gospel of Mark today as we've been in this series for a long time. I almost forgot last time, so I'm going to start with that. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. Uh, It's important that you have a Bible in here. If you don't have one at all, that is our gift to you. Go ahead and take that home. We hope and pray that you read it every single day. But we have been in the Gospel of Mark now what only seems like a couple weeks, uh, but really it's been since Easter Um, And at this pace, we're set to be here for about another decade, uh, so it's going to be a good time. We pray that you journey with us through the gospel of Mark for the next 10 years. I'm joking. It's okay. Everyone's looking at me really serious and nervous. Um, It's all right. Don't worry. I have two hours to preach this morning, so I'll definitely be able to get through a little bit of the... I'm kidding again, man. So serious, 1045. So serious. So we are going through the Gospel of John. We're going to be in chapter 6 if you want to open your Bibles. Oh, wait a minute. I have a super important announcement. I almost almost forgot. Super important announcement. You're going to want to tell everyone you know, especially if they come to Crossroads, 4th of July is next Sunday. What that means is we're going to have church online so all of us can watch church online. We are not going to be meeting in the building because the church is more than just these four walls, and what a great way to remember that. By We're not going to have church inside, but instead we're going to do an online service. What this means is this is a great opportunity for you to invite your friends that maybe would not want to come into the church four walls, but you can invite them to be a part of church online next week where all of us are going to be watching and viewing. There's going to be a live chat. Feel free to jump on there, interact with us. Again, this is a great opportunity maybe for your friends that are like, you know, I went to church one time and they gave me a hard time about my tattoos and so I didn't want to go back. That was a joke. All right, cool. We're off to a good start. We're off to a good start. Invite all your friends, people that have maybe been to church before, and they're like, dude, I really, you know, it's, it was a bad experience for me, and I don't know if I'm ready to go back. Next week is going to be a great opportunity to be like, hey, why don't you watch church online with me? You're not feeling like you're missing church because you're not. You're partaking in church online, 4th of July, next week. All right, there's the really important announcement. I'm going to remind you again at the end of service because it's that important, and I know by the time service is over, everyone's going to forget that I said that, so I'm also going to end with it. All right, Gospel of John chapter 6. We are in Gospel of John chapter 6. What we're going to do today is we're going to bypass a portion of Scripture, not permanently, but in John chapter 6 is the feeding of the 5,000 and the I am statement of Jesus. In the middle of that is this little couple verses in chapter 6 of Jesus walking on water. It's actually the fifth sign in the Gospel of John of Jesus' deity. So instead of trying to tackle the bread of life, the feeding of the 5,000, and then like fit in the Jesus walking on water, we're like, hey, why don't we tackle the Jesus walking on water and then tackle the feeding of the 5,000 in the I Am Statement next week. So we're going to be in John chapter 6, verses 16 is where we're going to start. Now the Gospel of John is one of four Gospels. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, 
and John. Most of the time when you're a new believer, someone tells you, hey, you should start with the Gospel of Mark, or I'll, I'll sometimes tell people the Gospel of um, John because it's so amazing and it's beautiful, poetic, and it tells you all about the person of Jesus in a unique way. What we leave out is the fact that, hey, if you start in Matthew and you read along, it's going to kind of be like a senile man of like, dude, why is this guy writing this all over again? And then you get to Luke and it's like, well, wait a minute. I just read this not just in Mark, but also in, in Matthew. Each of the Gospels are written with a unique purpose and an intentional audience. The Gospel of Matthew was written to the Jews. What that means is in Matthew chapter 1, he starts from the lineage of Abraham because Matthew's authorship was all about telling people Jesus was king of the Jews. So I want to p illustrate that picture by taking you from Matthew all the way from the lineage of Abraham to Jesus. Mark was written to the Romans. Now, Romans were like kind of blue collar. It was like, hey, we want results. We want immediate results. It's all about show me what you've done. And therefore, Mark being written to the Romans, he jumps right in with the ministry of Jesus, bypasses the whole birth, everything like that that we have in the other gospels. And he jumps right into the ministry of Jesus. And the most common word we have in the gospel of Mark is immediately. Immediately Jesus does this. Immediately he tells his disciples this. Immediately this. Because it's all about who he's writing it to. Luke is also unique because it's written to the Gentiles. What that means is where Matthew wrote from the genealogy of Abraham to Jesus, Luke, who's a physician, says this is to the Gentiles, so I'm going to take it from Adam to the person of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was not king for the Jews, but he was king over everyone. And he paints that illustration by showing we all come from the same mother and father. Therefore, Jesus' lineage is kingship over all. Matthew, Mark, and Luke share 60% of the same content. Remember that senile old man that just keeps repeating himself? Matthew, Mark, and Luke repeat 60% of the same content throughout their gospels. John is unique. John stands apart from all the other Gospels in that 90%, 90% of the Gospel of Mark is not written anywhere else in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't include 90% of what John includes. We've read that thus far through chapter 1. I am the in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You don't find that in any of the other Gospels. Today, is a story where we find it in two other Gospels. We not only have it in Mark, but we also have it in Matthew. Matthew and Mark both record this miracle, this sign of Jesus walking on water. What that means is as I read John chapter 6, I'm going to let you know now that two-hour remark was not a joke because we're also going to be talking about Mark and Matthew. No, I promise I'll keep it within the time allotted. I'll have you out of here on time. But we're going to read the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, and the Gospel of John, because what I want to show you is where any, many people will say the Bible contradicts itself, what I'm going to tell you is it actually complements itself. See, it doesn't contradict, it complements and I'll tell you right now a little secret. The best way to in interpret scripture, the best way to understand scripture is by using other scriptures. The best way to interpret scripture is with scripture. So what we're going to do is we're going to read all three of these stories 
so that we can see not necessarily the differences, but how they complement each other in the person and kingship of Jesus. So John chapter 6, verses 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because of a strong wind that was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near to the boat. And they were frightened. And he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Sea of Galilee was about 60 square miles. It was not a small sea, hence the word sea. 60 square miles of water. What else was unique was the fact that it was 650 feet below sea level. Now, you guys in the valley may not understand when I'm from Lompoc, remember? I understand wind, okay? If there's any Lompoc people in here, you understand wind. I'll literally be at my house at night, and I will hear the wind howling on my back porch as it's blowing strong. I understand wind. The fishermen of the Sea of Galilee had a good understanding of what might take place on the Sea of Galilee. What would happen is it would be in this valley... And suddenly, without knowing at all, they didn't have weather forecasts telling you all the wrong weather for the next seven days, okay? They had to rely on their instincts and superstition. And suddenly, there would be strong winds that would come ripping through this valley, and what once was a calm, peaceful, nice sea to fish on suddenly would become torrentious, and there would be waves overthrowing into the boat. This is what the 12 disciples find themselves in. Jesus is not with them in this boat. What's important for us to realize is storms are going to come our way. Many of us might be in a storm right now. Storms are going to come. And what we tend to do when a storm comes is we ask the question, why? God, why is this happening to me? What did I do wrong? Where did I get astray that has led me to this storm that I find myself in? Remember, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Sometimes storms come because we make foolish decisions. All of us were ch children in here at one point, right? I think 100% of us were. Some of us still are like, oh, I'm 30 years old, I'm still a bit of a child, you know? Uh, all of us have been children. We make foolish decisions sometimes. See, I think of David. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, it says this. It says, During the times when kings went out to battle, David remained. During the times when the kings would go with their armies out to battle, for whatever reason, David made a foolish decision. He should have gone like every other king, but instead he stays. And he lets the, the, the troops go without him. This is what starts the spiral of the storm that he finds himself in that we'll read a little bit further on. Sometimes foolish decisions will take you into the heart of a storm. Sometimes rebellious decisions. Again, 100% of us were children in here. Uh, some of you have kids, and some of you know they are outright rebellious sometimes. They'll look you dead in the eye and be like, nope, not, not doing that. I'm not cleaning my room. 
Sometimes rebellious decisions will lead us into a storm. I think of Moses, who's leading the people of Israel for 40 years in the desert. At one point, they start complaining because they're thirsty. I'd complain too. Sometimes I complain I'm thirsty or I'm hungry. They start to complain. So what God says is, Moses, strike the rock with your staff and water will come from it. So what does Moses do? He strikes the rock, and the people of Israel have water now. Later on, they complain again, and God tells Moses something. He says, speak to the rock so that water may come forth. We see this in Numbers chapter 20. God telling Moses, speak to the rock. I'm going to do it differently this time. Speak, and water will come forth. Moses decides to do something different. He decides to make a rebellious decision. He knows what God has said. He heard what God has said, but he's also seen what God did previously, and he goes, I'm, instead of speaking to it, I'm going to strike it. And God, in his graciousness, provides water for the people of Israel, even though Moses made a rebellious decision. What that led to was God telling Moses, because of this rebellious decision, you will not lead the people into the promised land. What you've been journeying for 40 years with a bunch of people that have been complaining, because of the rebellious decision, you will not be the one to lead them into the promised land. But you will see it, but not enter it. Sometimes we find ourselves in a storm because of sinful decisions. See, all of these can look different. Sinful decision. I think of David again. After he allows the troops to go to battle for him while he remains, he's on his rooftop, which obviously overlooks everything, and he sees a woman bathing named Bathsheba. Many of you know the story. He then takes this woman, murders her husband, the, the child of her dies that they have out of wedlock. Sinful decisions sometimes will take you into a storm. And all of us in here resonate with those things. They go, yeah, storms come, because of something I did wrong. I find myself in those storms. It's my own fault. I recognize that. In fact, I accept that because I want to have self-pity. I want to blame myself. What's hard is sometimes storms come because of obedience, because of right decisions that we made and being obedient to God, storms will come. Storms will take you where you did not expect to go. And storms will take you to a place that you're not able to navigate yourself. Oftentimes we want to ask why. And from scripture we've outlined it could be sin, could be rebellious, could be foolishness. Sometimes you did everything right. I think of the person of Job who was a righteous man and yet found himself amidst a chaotic storm in his life. And that's where we find ourselves today with the disciples. They find themselves in a storm, as we'll read in a different gospel, because they were obedient. When we're in the storm, what often happens is this thing called fear. Fear is something that levels the playing field. I don't care how old or how young you are, you've been afraid of something. And the feeling of fear is something that's so gripping. It's something that you can think back to. You can remember a time when you were afraid and you kind of go like, oh, 
Yeah, I was really afraid. I can remember my, my mom and dad were in the last service, and um, as I was preparing this message, I was trying to think of a time when I was afraid. It's completely un, unreal, or not unrealistic, but it's unreasonable. I'll admit it. But I remember being a child. And when I say child, like, man, four or five. Um, and as I was telling the story, I realized maybe I actually dreamed this. I don't know if this actually happened because my mom was looking at me like, what? What? That did not happen at all. How many of you have kids that it's like, that never happened. You fool. <laughs> I remember being a kid, and I can remember being on my bed. It was Halloween, and I remember my dad coming in with a werewolf mask and a black cape. I can remember it clear as day. And he started going like, like and I remember being absolutely terrified. I can remember breaking down in tears, screaming and crying while I see my mom standing in the doorway. I, in my head, she was laughing. Again, I think this might have been a dream in my subconscious. But when I think back to that moment, I legitimately get like, like that wouldn't scare me now, but I can remember that feeling of fear. Fear is the most common command in the Bible. Do not fear. Don't be afraid. Fear not. Some form of fear, and then do not be afraid. Do not fear. Do not be frightened. The most common command in the Bible is about fear. Let me tell you why. Because we deal with it all the time. The Bible has to constantly say something. It's probably because you constantly need to be reminded. In every account of this story in the Bible that we have, the disciples are either fearful, frightened, terrified. Every emotion you can think of that's negative and afraid, that's what they were. What happens and why we have fear is fear comes when we focus on the storm. Fear comes when we focus on the storm that we're in. What we do to combat our fear is we need to have faith. Faith comes when we fix our eyes on Jesus, who the Bible says in Hebrews is the author and perfecter of our faith. Fear comes when we focus on our circumstances and our storm. But faith comes when we fix our eyes on the person of Jesus. Our fear tells us that the storm we're in is bigger than us. That may be true. The storm you're in may be bigger than you. But I'll tell you what. The God we serve is bigger than the storm that we're currently in. This is what our faith does. Our faith fixes our eyes on the truth that's only found in Jesus. Of Yes, I recognize the storm may be bigger than me, but my faith goes, but my God's bigger than this storm. Fear will push you to control the outcome. How many people we have in here that are planners? Oh. No one wants to raise their hand. Everyone's like, no way, dude. No, I'm not falling for this. Planners. I'm a bit of a planner. Uh, another word you could probably use for that sometimes? A control freak. <laughs> Just going to be honest. I want to control things a little bit. And why do I do that? It's so that I can bypass the storm. Oh, I see that coming, so I'm going to plan. I'm going to control so that I can avoid that. And then when I find myself in the storm, I find myself trying to control the outcome of how I'm going to get out of the storm. Fear is going to push you to control the outcome of the storm. Your faith is going to say, Jesus, whatever the outcome is, I'm following you. 
Wherever you take me, I want to be close by. See, in the church, we have this saying. It's a horrible saying. If you give your life to Jesus, it's all going to be okay. Have you ever heard that before? If you give your life to Jesus, if you just live for Jesus, everything's going to work out. And they leave out the most important phrase, uh, when you die, okay? (laughs) When you die, everything is going to be okay. When you die, everything is going to work out. We laugh, and then there's a certain sense where we go, oh, man, I don't really like that. Sometimes scripture does that. When we look at our lives practically, see, when I'm in a storm, I want to control the outcome because I want to make it okay. I want to make it all right. I want to fool people into thinking maybe that isn't actually happening. But when I have faith and my eyes are fixed on Jesus, I go, Lord, whatever the outcome of this storm, I'm going to follow you because it's all going to be all right in the end. My faith is not about right now. My faith is about eternity. When I look Jesus face to face, everything will be okay. So I'm a, I already told you, I sometimes control. I like to make the outcome what I want. I can remember being 14 years old and uh, had a bit of a control moment. Uh, talk about fear. I used to skateboard, ride dirt bikes, all this stuff. Uh, breaking bones didn't, didn't, nothing. You know, I broke, a, I broke quite a few bones. I won't say a lot. There's probably people in here that have broken a lot more bones than me. But I've broken bones. It's fine. It doesn't bother me. What does bother me? What does make me afraid? Setting that bone. I'm not about that. So I remember skateboarding when I was 14 years old. My mom, because I was 14, I couldn't drive, loaded up all of us hoodlums into a car, took us to a skate spot, and we started skating. Uh, Not five minutes into that nice skate session, we called my mom back uh, because I had broke my foot severely. Showed up to a skate spot, thought a little bit too high of myself, and I went for something. Didn't quite go my way, and I landed on my foot wrong, and when I came down on my foot like this, my whole foot just kind of gave up and just collapsed in on itself. Um, And number one rule when you skateboard, it's like you roll your ankles all the time. That's honestly what it kind of felt like. So in my head, I was like, oh, take my shoe off. So I just ripped my shoe off and I was like, okay, something in me, I have no idea why to this day, possessed me to take my sock off also. Um, And as I took my sock off, what I saw on my foot was so unnatural, so horrible, so disgusting. There was just lumps all over the top of my foot that I was like, that shouldn't be there. 14 years old, okay, remember, breaking bones, it's like, uh, okay, I don't want to set bones. More than that, in my 14-year-old head, my brain thought because it's so disfigured that it's dislocated. How you dislocate the middle of your foot, again, (laughs) don't ask me. My wife's a nurse, and I'm like, still to this day, I go, that was the stupidest thing I ever thought in my life. Like, you can't dislocate that. But in my head, I was like, it's dislocated. And then my brain jumped to, "I I can fix this myself. And I go back to movies of like the shoulder all like flopping and people just like slam their shoulder and it's like, all right, cool, like I'm good to go. And I was like, I'll keep skating. That does not happen also. Um, So as I look at my foot, the fear of them having to pop all my lack of joints, they're not even there, back together, I panicked and I went, ah, and slammed my foot down thinking that in that moment, everything is just going to like, like, go back to normal. Um, 
And I can remember in that moment feeling nothing because I knew I'd hurt myself enough. There's a certain amount of adrenaline that's pumping through your veins. And I slammed my foot down barefoot on concrete. Nothing happened. And I just remember being like, oh, no. And I just started like walking away screaming. And at some point I collapsed down. That's when the phone call to my mom went out and uh, I broke my foot. I didn't dislocate it. And if you do dislocate something, slamming against something probably is not the best idea. Take it from me. I know. But in that moment, I wanted to control the outcome. My fear made me do something totally unreasonable that to this day I went, well, that was stupid. Like there's no way around it. That was stupid. Like at 14 years old, I should have known better. That's not going to help. But my fear was like, fix this and make it the way you want it to be. Let's look at the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 6 tells us a couple things differently. Mark chapter 6, verses 45, it says, Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. Remember when we talked about the storm and how sometimes you're in the middle of a storm because you're obedient and you do exactly what you're supposed to? This is the disciples. Mark 6, 45. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. When evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them. That was between... 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning. After all night, about 3 to 6 a.m., he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, which is always funny to me because it's just like, Jesus was like, maybe they won't see me. <laughs> like, uh, I don't know. It's in the text. He meant to pass by them, but they were like, ah, it's a ghost. He didn't make it. They were terrified, and he immediately spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them. The wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. But their hearts were hardened. How many of you want it your way? How many of you are married? Because your hand should be up at that point. It's just a part of marriage. Uh, me and my wife are redoing our backyard. She wants real grass. I want fake grass. I want it my way. I'll tell you right now, we're probably going to put real grass in our backyard. Okay, spoiler <laughs> alert. I want it my way. The disciples find themselves at the feeding of the 5,000. According to the Gospel of John, the feeding of the 5,000 ends saying this. Perceiving then that they were about to take, come and take him by force, him being Jesus, they were going to take Jesus by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So Jesus feeds 5,000, the Bible says, men, which means there was also probably women and children. Roman Empire was not known to be the kindest to the Jews. You would argue in this culture that they needed a king that would advocate for them. They needed a liberator that would take them away from the rule of the unjust Romans. A good marker for a king this dude just fed thousands of people out of a couple loaves of bread and some fish. All right? I'm printing Jesus stickers that say, vote for Jesus. Like, I'm going to be doing that. Like, if I'm there getting fed, I'd be like, dude, I'm following this guy. Wherever he's going, I'm going because he fulfilled my need. And at some point, 
as thousands, more than likely 10 to 15,000 people, all pushing by force to try and make Jesus king, where do you think the disciples are? If I were a disciple, I'd be like, they got a good point. I kind of like what they're chanting. Jesus for king. Jesus for king. I'd be making a sign if I were one of the disciples. I'd be thinking, how can we make this guy the ruler? Because he's going to be the one that liberates us from Rome. Why did the disciples have to get pushed into a boat? I think there was maybe a bit that they wanted it their way. With thousands of people, the masses all saying one thing, and the disciples probably go, they have a pretty good point. And therefore, Jesus, Mark says, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat, send them across the sea, though, so that he can dismiss the crowds. Jesus is the ultimate bouncer, all right? 10 to 15,000 people, and Jesus is able to disperse the crowds, send his disciples away, and then on top of all of that, he goes up onto the mountain to pray all alone. Luke tells us that Jesus often would retreat and pray. He would often withdraw away from people to pray. Why is it Jesus would withdraw so often to pray? The opportunity that Jesus had was great. We read a couple weeks ago of the pool of Bethesda with a, a mass amount of people on a deck that were lame, sick, that needed healing and were looking to a pool for their healing. And Jesus shows up and heals one man. Jesus could have done so much for everyone. We see here he feeds thousands and thousands of people. Why would Jesus pray so often? Because he had to know what to do. How many of you just fill needs? That's me, man. I'll just fill the need. I don't care what it is. Like, you need a trench dug? That's fine, I can take a trench. Like, you want me to hang this up? I'll, I'll just do that. You need someone to help out and like skate with kids? Like, yeah, that's fine, I'll totally do that. You need someone to like play guitar? Like, yeah, I could, I could do that. Like, I'm just gonna constantly be filling needs. I'm constantly going to be doing what others want me to do. What I need to do, and I think what some of you in this room need to do is pray. You need to seek God. God, what is it that you want me to do? Because the needs are endless. So when I figure out what you want me to do, it gives me the liberty to say no to what man wants me to do. Some of us are people pleasers in here. I think we all have a sense of people pleasing in us. I encourage you, get away, withdraw, find solitude and solace with God and pray and go, Lord, what do you want me to do? Because when you know what God wants you to do, it gives you the liberty to say, that's good what you want me to do, but that's not what I'm supposed to do. I'm glad that you want someone to do that. It's just not me that's supposed to do that. Jesus would often withdraw and pray because the opportunities he had were great. Verse 48, we see that he sees the disciples from the mountain. As he's praying, he sees his disciples. Now, more than likely, this was a miracle in itself because remember, it's very dark, 60 square miles on the Sea of Galilee, and he's able to see that the disciples are making painful headway. 
Whatever storm you find yourself in, take heart because Jesus sees you. You're not alone. You don't go through it alone, but Jesus sees you. And Jesus comes to them in the storm. Oftentimes, we want to be removed from whatever storm we find ourselves in. We say, Lord, just take me out of it. Remove me. Do whatever you have to to get me out of here. And rather, Jesus is found walking on the water into the storm to be with you in the storm. That's good news, friend. That's very good news. Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, is in the middle of the storm with us. And the last thing I want to draw your attention to in the Gospel of Mark is the end. They were utter, utterly astounded. They did not understand about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. Oftentimes, we want to think of hard hearts as unbelievers, those that don't know Jesus, those that don't follow Jesus. Well, they just have a hard heart. Question, did the disciples follow Jesus? Yeah, they did. Did they love Jesus? Yeah. Did they always get it right? No. But they followed Jesus, and yet the scripture tells us they have hard hearts. It's important for you to realize your heart can be hard. Don't think that you're above that, that that's for some unbeliever that doesn't follow Jesus, but I'm not able to do that, because that will get you in tricky territory. If you find yourself with your money going, God, I know you want to do something great, but it's mine. Maybe your heart's hard. If you find yourself lacking any motivation at all to read the Bible, I'll tell you right now, a lot of people don't read the Bible, not because they don't understand it, but they don't like what it says. If you find yourself going, I don't want to read your word, I don't like what it says, maybe your heart is hard. Maybe even this morning, some of you are going, it's hard for me to realize and wrestle that Jesus is the one that actually sent them into the storm because they did nothing wrong. And I would say, yeah, I'm right there with you. I'm wrestling with this text the same as you. That's why here at Crossroads, we don't go topical sermons. We don't just pick out what we like and say, let us make your marriage better and let us, let us talk up to this and let's give you more joy in your life. Like, that's not what we want to do. What we, what we try and do is tackle the Bible verse by verse so that we can wrestle together so that we can better understand the heart of Jesus. That's why we read the Bible verse by verse. It's not always going to be easy, but we will all be better off for it when we wrestle with these verses. Let's now la look at the last account that we have of Jesus walking on water. This one's going to be a little bit different. This comes from Matthew chapter 14. Again, there's going to be some of this that's like a senile man just repeating himself over and over again. Verses 22, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat. Okay, we, we got that. And go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. Jesus, the ultimate bouncer. After he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray when evening came, he was all alone, but the boat by this time was a long way off from land, beaten by the waves, for wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. But when his disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, whoa, wait a minute. We got Peter in the story now. This wasn't here in the other two. 
Peter said to him, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. I don't know about you, I associate with Peter quite a bit. Not because I've walked on water, but as I read the Gospels, I go, sometimes he was a bit of a bonehead. Uh, Sometimes he's like, I'm going to say this, and then it's like, oh, that was the wrong thing to say. Like, Peter, who do you say I am? You're the Christ. You can't go and die for our sins. And Jesus is like, get behind me, Satan. And I'm like, ooh, I don't like that, but I associate with that guy. Like, I've made some mistakes. I've fallen short. I haven't always done what Jesus wants me to to do. Many of us associate with Peter quite a bit. Peter is constantly taking a test and failing it. And then sometimes he'll pass it, and then he fails it. Who do you say I am? You're the Christ. A plus. Very next phrase. You can't go and die for us. Fail. You obviously don't know who I am. Peter, walking on water, pass the test. Sees the waves. I'm sinking. Failed test. Peter cuts off a guy's ear. Fails the test. And then people are like, hey, you know Jesus. I don't know who Jesus is. Double fail the test. And then the Gospel of John records Jesus by the fireside cooking fish. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I do. Passes the test. History outside of the Bible would record Peter being crucified upside down because he doesn't feel worthy enough to die the same way his Savior did. Peter is constantly passing and failing the test. Listen, you don't have a teacher that lets you retake the test every time you fail it. If you did, you might have been homeschooled, all right? That doesn't happen. People don't let you just retake the test over and over and over and over again, and yet the story of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, is he's like, oh, you didn't quite get it. Let's, let's try it again. Oh, good job. Oh, nah, let's, let's, hey, grace upon grace, unmerited, undeserved favor. I'm with you. Peter comes out and says, Lord, if it's you, command me to come on the water. And he begins stepping out of the boat. He's a fisherman, all right? The only worst place you could be is on a boat in a storm. The even worse place, out of the boat on a storm. All right, I surf and I always say, dude, I'd rather be on the shore wishing I was paddling out than paddling out wishing I was on the shore, okay? Peter does something absolutely incredible here where I probably would have been, Lord, if it's you, just put me on the shore. Lord, if it's you, then come into the boat right now. Like, I need you right Here, Jesus, if it's truly you, then remove me from my circumstances. And what Peter does is something so amazing because he goes, Jesus, if it's really you, then call me to come to you. Give me the ability to draw closer to you. And what Jesus says, 
One word, come. He doesn't say, let me calm the sea first so that you can come out. He doesn't go, let me part the ocean so that you can actually walk on dry land and then you can come to me. He doesn't resolve the current circumstance and problem in front of Peter. What he says is, come. Jesus invites Peter to come and walk on the water with him. Genesis chapter 1 records, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the sea. The sea was often eluded as chaos, complete and utter chaos. And here we have Jesus walking on the sea, bringing order to chaos. Not only is Jesus doing it, he's invited Peter to walk onto the sea towards him. As Peter begins walking, he, he's taking steps. Walking isn't like one step. You have to take steps to walk. We don't know how many steps Peter took, but no doubt it was at least a couple. And as he's walking towards Jesus, the other 11 disciples seeing what's happening, probably absolutely amazed. And as he draws closer and closer and closer to Jesus with every step, suddenly the plot twists. He begins to sink as he takes notice of the winds that are all around him. He becomes distracted from the person of Jesus that's right in front of him. And you know what's so interesting? You know when he becomes distracted? When he's so close to Jesus that he can reach out his hand and save him. Sometimes you become the most distracted when you are the closest to Jesus. Sometimes as you draw closer and closer and suddenly you feel like you're so close and then all of a sudden a month later you go, how in the world did I get here? Like I remember last month being this and now it's like I've somehow drifted so far off I began sinking and I didn't cry out, Jesus save me, I'm sinking. Realize and understand. Prepare for this beforehand. As you get closer to Jesus, the distractions may become more prevalent in your life. The distractions may become something easier to focus on. Be aware of that. Prepare yourself for that. What's great about Jesus? As Peter says, Lord, save me, I'm sinking. Jesus doesn't go, let me tell you where you went wrong, Peter. Let me tell you how you messed up. Let me tell you how you could have avoided this. Let me tell you all the ways that you fell short. No, I know, I know you're sinking. Don't worry, I'll, I'll get to you at the very end. Like, I'm, I'm not done lecturing you. Let me talk a little bit more. That's not what Jesus does. What Jesus does is he reaches his hand, takes him, and pulls him out of the water and says, oh, you of little faith. That little faith took Peter all the way across the water to in front of Jesus. Faith the size of a mustard seed. Don't think of that as a negative remark. Don't look at that and go, oh, Peter, like, only had a little bit of faith. Yeah, and he walked on water, okay? That's unique. 
That's different. That's special. And that little bit of faith was able to get Peter, amidst all the circumstances that stood in front of him, it was able to get him to the feet of Jesus, to the point where Jesus could reach out his hand, pull him from the water, and say, oh, you have little faith. They begin to journey back to the boat together. It says they get into the boat, and as they get into the boat, the winds cease. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. I think in our lives all the time, we have a decision to make. We can worry or we can worship. And we worship God not because he needs to be worshipped, okay? God doesn't need your worship, but you need to worship God. You need to worship. And it may not make the worry disappear and go away, the storm may still be there. Remember, it's all going to be okay later on. We're not seeking the temporary satisfaction. We're not seeking the immediate results of God. What we're saying is, Lord, I'm fixing my eyes on the person of Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith, because I know how the story ends. In your worry, we need to worship God. Before we end, I want to read a poem to you. This poem is by a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer was a, a theologian, a German theologian during the time of World War II. He was actually martyred in a concentration camp. Uh, amazing life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He actually was a prestigious a professor within Germany and Poland, and it actually bounced around a lot in Europe. And he was actually sent away from Germany and Poland during the time of Nazi rule because they were like, dude, you're gonna, this Jesus thing could really mess up the story. So we're gonna send you to America. Where he goes, and as he's in America, his heart breaks for his people back home in Germany and willingly goes back to Germany to be with his people to give them the hope that is only found in Jesus. Well, he's arrested, he's put in a concentration camp where he later would die. And while he's in this concentration camp, he writes this poem entitled, Who Am I? Who am I? They often tell me. I stepped from my cells confident, calmly, cheerfully, firmly, like a squire from his country house. Who am I? They often tell me. I used to speak to my warders freely and friendly and clearly, as though they were mine to command. Who am I? They also tell me I bore the days of misfortune, equably, smilingly, proudly, like one accustomed to win. Am I then really that which other men tell of? Or am I only what I myself know of myself, restless, and longing and sick, like a bird in a cage, struggling for breath as though hands were compressing my throat, yearning for colors, for flowers, for the voices of birds, thirsting for words of kindness, for neighborliness, tossing in expectation of great events, powerlessly trembling for friends at an infinite distance, weary and empty at praying, at thinking, at making, faint, and ready to say farewell to it all. Who am I? 
this or the other? Am I one person today and tomorrow another? Am I both at once a hypocrite before others and by before myself a contemptible, woe-begone weakling? Or is something within me still like a beaten army, fleeing in disorder from victory already achieved? Who am I? They mock me, these lonely questions of mine. Whoever I am, thou knowest, O God, I am thine. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for the story of Jesus walking on the water, showing that he rules over the chaos, and he comes into the storm with us. Lord, we have to wrestle with sometimes we're in storms because we are completely obedient to you. But we take heart and joy because the gospel is that you're in the storm with us. And you will come back and make everything just right. But until that, Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. We love you, Jesus. We thank you. It's in your mighty name that we pray. And everyone at Crossroads says, amen.